As most of you, if not all, are aware, we are involved in a brief series of lessons on Sunday morning dealing with the importance of reclaiming, restoring the lost sheep, those who have gone astray. We have looked at preparing the saved to seek the lost, emphasizing in that lesson that in order to be effective in the process in which God has charged us to be involved in his word, we must ourselves be converted, fully converted, that we must be convinced that men are lost, that sin separates them from God. We must be concerned about their condition. We must be compassionate toward them. We must prepare ourselves by being capable of of teaching based upon our study of the Word of God and our consistency in our lives as Christians. And we've also seen that we must understand the dire consequences of our failure to seek the lost sheep and to return them to the fold of God. This morning, we want to deal with this aspect of this very important vital subject, and that is this. Why is it that Christians go astray? We're going to look at why Christians go astray, and it's obvious that as we, as we look at it, we, we know that they do, tragically, that Christians do go astray. I dare say that most, if not all of you, can count several examples with which you are personally acquainted. Those who have left the faith, those who have left the fold of God, those who are no longer faithful as they once were. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And it certainly hits home when it affects family members and those who are really spiritual family members, but certainly our own families many times are, are affected tragically by Christians who have gone astray. Do those things alarm us as they should? Hopefully they do. But if we're to appreciate the task of seeking the lost, as a part of that task, we need to understand the condition of the lost and why it is that they go astray. And I'd like for us to begin by letting the Bible describe for us the condition of the one who has gone astray. First of all, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 9 and verse 12 that they are, they are spiritually sick. They're ill, spiritually speaking. You remember in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees were sharply critical of that and said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response was, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now these were individuals who were outside of the fold of God, but Jesus sets forth a principle here when he describes those who are in sin as being sick, sin sick. The worst kind of illness that one can possibly contemplate. 
They're also like sheep with no shepherd because they have left the fold, the sheepfold. In Matthew chapter 9, in verse 36, we see the compassion of Jesus toward the lost when he saw the multitudes there and was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And that describes the condition of the sheep who has wandered from the fold, no shepherd. They are also separate from Christ. And yes, they are without hope and without God. And what a tragedy, because they had once had that hope. They had once known God. But they have become like those described by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians as he looked back upon their past sinful condition and wrote to them, Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That describes their condition before they obeyed the gospel, but those who've obeyed and have wandered are back in that same condition without hope and without God. The same Ephesian letter describes those who were dead in trespasses and sins, and that's an apt description of those who have left the fold. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's where those who have left the fold have returned to that situation of being dead spiritually through trespasses and sins. And yes, we have looked at the passage that is so sobering in regard to those who have once known the truth and departed from it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Here's the description. You remember it, I'm sure. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. What a graphic description of those who once knew the Lord and had obeyed the gospel who have turned away. And yes... They have made themselves enemies of Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm sure that many who have wandered astray do not consider themselves to be the enemies of Christ. And yet, that is an apt description, tragically, of those who have apostatized. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul writes, For many walk of whom I have told you often, now tell you even weeping. I tell you, notice, even weeping as we should weep about those who've left. I tell you, even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. He goes on to say, for our citizenship is in heaven, but those who've left the fold, their citizenship is no longer in heaven. They have given up their citizenship. They have given up their spiritual citizenship, abandoned it, forfeited it. No greater tragedy could possibly be considered than having done that. And as I said, those who have done so would not necessarily characterize themselves as enemies of Christ. And yet, remember what Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty: He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather scatters abroad. Those are the words of Jesus. And beyond that, they are treading upon Christ, dishonoring the blood of the cross, and despitefully treating the Spirit of grace. Those are the words of the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yes, these whom the scripture describes in these ways are on a path which could very well reach a point of no return. No realistic possibility of reclaiming them because hearts become so hardened that nothing, no one, can reach them. Again, the Hebrews writer described those who were in danger of turning their backs upon the gospel and going back to a law that could not save them. He said, if they fall away, this is Hebrews chapter 6, we go back to verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open Shame. I recognize that he's talking about those who have abandoned or are thinking of abandoning the law of Christ and going back to the law that has no sacrifice, no possibility of forgiveness. But the principle is nonetheless true that those who abandon the covenant and discount the blood that saved them from sin are indeed putting him, the Lord, to an open shame. And yes, they could persist to a point to where the realistic possibility of turning them around is virtually non-existent. Similar statement in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 26, tells us the importance of doing all that we can to encourage one another to keep that from happening, that apostasy 
And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Unless they come home to the blood of Christ, there is nothing else that can save them. And the longer they are away, And the longer we fail to make efforts to bring them home, the more difficult it becomes. That's why it's so important that efforts be made in timely fashion to reclaim the wayward. But now that we have let the scriptures describe the condition of those who've gone astray, let's ask this question. Why? Why? Why do Christians go astray? First of all, let me mention some things which are probably not the reasons for their going astray. First of all, they probably did not intend to go astray. That was not their intention. And they didn't go away from the Lord as a result of some sudden act of decision. I've mentioned this before. Very few people ever suddenly make the decision, say in one service such as this one, This is it. I'm finished. I'm through. When I leave these doors today, you will never see me again. That generally does not happen. Generally what happens is we don't see you tonight. We didn't see you at Bible study this morning. And we may not see you Wednesday night. Even though we might have at one point in time, seen you on Sunday morning at Bible study and worship and Sunday night and Wednesday night, but not any more so much on Wednesday night, not so much on Sunday night, not so much on Sunday morning for Bible study. And that is a process that begins with many, and they don't view that as a process through which they are leaving the Lord rather than seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, it's not a sudden decision to abandon everything related to assembling with the saints, maybe just Wednesday, maybe just Sunday night, maybe just Bible study, but it's not sudden. And they may not have even known they were going astray until they were well on the way. And so what then are the reasons? Well, the parable of the sower sets forth two basic reasons or causes. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this very significant parable of Jesus. I want us to simply concentrate on Luke's account for our purposes this morning. In Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. Here is what Jesus gives us in parable form. When a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. 
And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, who, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And then he explains the parable. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now there are three kinds of unproductive soil that are discussed in this parable, but only two of these illustrate those who have become Christians. You see, the wayside soil does not represent one who has become a Christian. He never receives and obeys the word. And so that does not apply to those about whom we're speaking this morning. But there are others here that do apply. One, those who have no depth, no root, deep roots, conviction, and then those for whom the care and pleasures and riches of the world appeal and draw them and lead them astray. And so the rocky ground and the thorny soil are the two types of soil that illustrate those who have become Christians, and yet for various reasons, as the Lord describes, fall away. Now, there may be some specific reasons which fall into these general categories. Perhaps they were never taught properly after becoming Christians. Whose fault is that? Well, it may have been through the failure on their part. It may have been partially the failure of others, but every child of God who becomes a child of God certainly should hear and appreciate and apply what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 2. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Or 2 Peter three eighteen, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's incumbent upon that newborn Christian to desire the Word and to feed upon the Word, and it is incumbent upon all others in the family of God to encourage that growth and to encourage that study. You know, I've mentioned before that there are really three stages of Christian development. There's the please help me stage initially, which says, in effect, I'm a baby. I need to be fed, I need help, I need encouragement. And then 
I can move on to that second stage, which is the I can help myself stage. In other words, I can stand on my own two spiritual feet to a great extent. Oh yes, I appreciate the mutual encouragement that I receive from my brothers and my sisters, but if no one says a word to me, I'll be here when the doors are open. I can help myself. I've grown. I've applied myself to that spiritual growth. And yet, as I've mentioned before, tragically, many seem to think that there are only two stages and that we've just gone through them. Please help me and I can help myself. But the greatest joy in the Christian life is by moving to the third stage of Christian development, and that is the stage that says, now let me help you. And you know, it's when a person reaches that third stage that he or she is far less likely to apostatize because there's so much joy in serving others and helping others. And the realization that as I do, I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do and I do it with joy. Let me help you is that third and final stage. And so, if they're not taught properly, it may be through their own failure or partially the failure of others. Indeed, the elders of the flock in Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter 5, are charged with feeding the flock and making sure that the flock is well-led and well-fed. And then it may be that careless Christians may have caused occasions of stumbling. And that can happen. We need to be very careful about that, don't we? It's a sobering thought that the Lord plants within our hearts as we read his words in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 5, beginning, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him. If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the depth of the sea, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Let us make sure that we determine that the offense to any fellow Christian, cause of stumbling, is not going to come from me. That doesn't mean that I should not rebuke sin. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Because in Luke 17, 3, he says, if your brother sins... Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. He's not talking about admonishing those in sin to come away from sin. He's talking about causing them to stumble carelessly and unnecessarily. And sometimes careless Christians can bring that about. And then it's the case that former associates sometimes pull people back into sin. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. And quite often, especially with young people who obey the gospel, this is a tremendously powerful pull back into those old associations, back into those old habits that pull them back into sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, remember the Apostle Paul had something to say about the kind of relationships that we are to avoid throughout our Christian lives, not only when we are new Christians, but at any point in time. And he admonishes in verse 14, beginning, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There's a passage that makes it abundantly clear that when we leave the world, we are to leave the world in terms of being affected adversely by those still in the world. We are to affect favorably those who are still in the world rather than being affected adversely by them. And yet many times the pull is the other way. And especially among those whose faith is weak. And that's another reason that they fall away. Because their faith does not grow And it wavers and puts them into jeopardy. Sometimes fear may be the cause. Yes, fear. Fear of of being ostracized, fear of being criticized. And you know, that's something that all of us face in the Lord's church, especially in the day and time in which we live, and a time at which in which we live, which I've said before, is a time where exclusivity is about as repugnant to the vast majority of people living today than it's ever been. And yet the church is still as as exclusive today as it was when it was established by the Lord on Pentecost Day long ago. And yet, as I mentioned the other night, while we have a border crisis Physically on our border, we have a spiritual border crisis in the Lord's church today with those who have basically ignored the borders that God has placed because of the temptation, I'm afraid, many times to be accepted, not to be ostracized because of fear of that kind of being ostracized, that fear of being rejected, that fear of being looked upon as someone who is a fanatic, someone who is a legalist, someone who is far out. I want to be as narrow-minded as the Lord is. And I can be if I'll just follow this book. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5 The mind of Christ is right here, revealed to us. And that's how narrow-minded I want to be just as narrow-minded as he was and is, no more and no less, and striving to be as compassionate and as loving as he was and is. That should be the goal of all of us, shouldn't it? But we dare not blur the borders, if not destroy them completely, that God has erected. And you and I both know that many are doing that very thing today. You know, sometimes social pressures may lead many astray. Led the Apostle Peter astray, didn't it? Where do we read that social pressures ever led Peter astray? It's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. 
beginning. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Paul did not mince words when he confronted Peter, who maybe a combination of fear and social pressure caused him not to be straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Those are an inspired man's words, Paul's words. Peter, an apostle, which reminds us that it can happen to the best. And indeed, the pressures many times are great. False teachers lead some astray. 1 John 4, 1, John says, Test the spirits, or the teachers, whether they be of God. For many false prophets are gone out into the world. There are many false teachers in the world today. Oh yes, there are so many reasons why Christians go astray. And Satan never gives up. He may have some special darts in his quiver, so to speak, some special arrows in his quiver just for you. Because he knows your weakest point. And he knows which ones will have the better chance of working with you that might not work at all with me and what might work with me that won't work for you. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And at this point, tragically, he's in the process of devouring even some among our own number here. Our responsibility out of love for them is to make every concerted and compassionate effort to snatch them away from Satan and bring them home to their first love. But if we're to be effective in seeking the lost, we must be aware of their desperate condition. And it is desperate. And then we'll be better able to understand the specific conditions of the lost if we know the cause for that person, that precious soul's going astray. Each case is different. Every individual is different. And each case, though, involves a precious, precious soul, an eternal soul. And because each case involves that precious, eternal soul, we must proceed with care. Care. But we must proceed. Where are you this morning? Can you say honestly with yourself that you are where you need to be to be a part of seeking those who are not where they need to be any longer? Or are you among those who need to respond, to come home, who have not been completely faithful to the Lord?
Are you one who's outside of Christ, who's never come to the Lord initially? If so, we plead with you to express your faith this morning in the Christ. Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, as the scriptures teach, and be buried with him in baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, the Lord said, that you may rise as a new babe, feeding upon the word of God, and doing all that you can to grow to maturity and to encourage others to come to the Lord or to come back to the Lord if they've wandered. And if you're among those who have wandered and need to come home, it's not to be baptized again, but the second law of pardon that God has set for the wayward is repentance. True, genuine repentance. And confession as publicly as the sin has been committed, as we often say. Private sin needs to be dealt with privately between you and God. But public sin to be repented of so that your example can be restored and your precious soul restored as well. And if that's your need, we plead with you to come now as we stand to sing to encourage you.